Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And if you are new here, just plain old welcome. I am so, so happy that you are here. I hope that you enjoyed the last episode about synesthesia and that you are excited about some new cool neuroscience. So for episode number 10, I wanted to talk about the neuroscience of ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. ADHD is a disorder in which people, and often children, have trouble focusing, trouble staying still, or they may act impulsively. This condition, formerly called hyperkinetic reaction to childhood, <laughs> wasn't added to the D- <laughs> wasn't added to the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as attention deficit disorder until 1980, and we still have a long way to go towards recognizing ADHD, especially in women, and treating it effectively. Before I start, I want to make a disclaimer that I am not a medical professional and I am reporting on academic publications. If you feel like you are in need of medical assistance, please, please seek out a doctor or a healthcare professional. Also, a side note, a lot of the research that I'm going to be talking about has been conducted in mostly males, and symptoms and presentations may be different in women or if you identify outside of that category. With that, let's dive into some of the symptoms and presentations of ADHD. People with ADHD might lose focus a lot during the day. They may daydream, squirm, fidget, talk too much, take careless risks, or have a hard time resisting temptation. In fact, there are three different kinds of ADHD, depending on the types of symptoms that are strongest in the individual. The first is predominantly inattentive presentation where the person has trouble organizing and finishing tasks, paying attention to details, or following instructions or conversations. The second is hyperactive impulsive presentation, where the person fidgets and talks a lot, much like me on my third cup of coffee, but, you know, a lot more serious and disruptive and not entirely my own fault because the yummy bean juice tastes like chocolate. I really like mochas, if you didn't know that already, but now you know. (laughs) Um, These individuals find it hard to sit still, and children with this presentation may run, jump, or climb constantly. They may also have trouble with impulsive behavior and might have more accidents or injuries than most. Finally, some people might present with a combination of the two types. Presentation might change over time in an individual as the brain grows and connects and matures and changes, but longitudinal studies have been able to show that two-thirds of ADHD youth will continue to have impairing symptoms of ADHD in adulthood, and ADHD has been linked to a wide range of functional impairments, including school failure, peer rejection, occupational failure, and divorce, which shows why it is so, so, so important to study it and understand how to treat it correctly. So on that very positive note, let's dive into the neurological basis of ADHD. So it looks like at the moment, we don't completely understand how it arises in the brain, but there are some findings that have started to point us in the right direction. First off, there does appear to be a genetic component, meaning that it can be passed down from parent to child. 
Researchers have looked at connections between individuals with ADHD and their siblings and found a nine-fold increased risk of the condition in siblings with ADHD family members. Twin studies have yielded estimates of irritability right around 70 to 80 percent, which I interpret as if one twin has it, what are the odds the other one does as well? So I would take note of that number. I would take note that that number is less than 100 percent and just kind of tuck it in the back of your brain for a minute, just for a teeny tiny bit, just hold it there. So the next step would be to look for a disease gene by looking at genetic linkage studies for evidence that some gene is transmitted with a disorder within families. But, unfortunately, there appear to be significant disagreements about which chromosomal regions were linked to ADHD. So that kind of went nowhere. The next step after that was to look at the treatments for ADHD, which researchers knew targeted dopaminergic or noradrenergic transmission. And so they looked for candidate genes associated with those pathways. By their logic, if drugs that increase dopamine transmission worked to help with ADHD, maybe ADHD resulted from deficient dopamine transmission genes. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, a means of sending messages between brain cells, and this specific chemical messenger is known to play important roles in regulating reward, movement, think back to the fidgeting, and attention. So this approach, looking at drug targets, that makes sense, right? That's a good, good idea. But unfortunately, results were frequently contradictory. ruh row. So next, they did a GUS study, which I know it's not the right way to say it, but that's the only way I can say it in my head. <laughs> but it stands for Genome-Wide Association Study, which scans the entire genome to detect common DNA variants having very small disease-contributing con- effects common meaning greater than 1% of the population. So their first round didn't find any DNA variants that had genome-wide significance. But researchers, they are known for their persistence. A second round found 12 loci with genome-wide significance. Victory! And the results made a lot of sense. One of the genes had been looked at before for adult ADHD, another regulated neurotransmitter homeostasis, another guided neuronal wiring during embryonic development, just to discuss a few. And it kind of makes sense. You know, you mess with those things, you're probably going to get some sort of wonky focus abilities. That didn't make sense. You know what I mean. Ultimately, what these studies also showed was that possibly much of ADHD irritability is due to multi-gene effects of many common variants, each having small effects. Current work is also on the hunt for rare genetic variants, not common ones, but the jury's still kind of out on that one. Now, all right, go get that piece of information from the back of your head, the one about how twin studies of irritability of ADHD show that it's less than 100%. Now, what this finding means is that there's also environmental factors involved in the development of ADHD. It's not just genetics. So... There have been a couple of environmental things that have been thought to contribute to the development of ADHD. These include birth mothers consuming alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs while pregnant. Pregante. Sorry, it's a reference to a really stupid YouTube video. Uh, Premature birth, exposure to lead during pregnancy or childhood, or brain injury. Prenatal alcohol absorption may result in a decreased number of neurons in the newborn brain and disordered dopamine synthesis and uptake. 
Other substances like caffeine, heroin, tobacco have similar effects on the developing child's brain and may result in some fucked up neural wiring and neurotransmitter pathways that are important to maintaining focus and intention. We know that being exposed to lead at any age is dangerous, but in the developing brain, it could lead to disrupted synapse formation, reduction in dopamine neuron branching and length, etc., etc. All of these are very, very bad things that you don't want. There are also a number of psychosocial factors that might make existing ADHD more severe, including a disordered household environment, poverty and all the stresses that go along with that, unsupportive parents, etc., Now, these appear to be more impermanent, but they do make sense. When the brain is already disordered, increased disorder in the home and in the environment probably doesn't help. Good amounts of sleep and minimal exposure to TV and electronic media have also been connected to improved ADHD symptoms. This makes sense, as frequent stimulus changes in TV and video games may interfere with an individual's ability to stay focused on attention-grabbing tasks And we know that sleep is king for proper brain function. Get your eight plus hours, y'all. I've linked a review paper in the show notes that exhaustively goes through research into different substances, caffeine, lead, copper, manganese, other chemicals I can't pronounce and don't really want to try, and their various sources in your life, and that could increase the risk of ADHD. And if that is something that interests you, I highly recommend checking that paper out. Now, This is all fun and games, but let's get into some neurotransmitters and neural networks. If you are here for the computational kind, no, wrong place, go back, take the other left in the podcast platform, I'm sure you'll get to where you need to go. You may have heard the word dopamine repeated a few times in the last 10 minutes, and that's because dopamine and dopaminergic pathways have been targeted as a key aspect of ADHD. ADHD may involve a dysfunction in the brain reward cascade. These kinds of dysfunctions have been associated with impulse, addictive, and compulsive behaviors, and it's entirely possible that ADHD is a behavioral subtype of this kind of disorder. Originally, it was thought that individuals with ADHD simply have low levels of dopamine, but as more research emerged, it has also come to be understood that they may have higher concentrations of dopamine transporters and neurons in dopaminergic networks, which in turn remove dopamine from the space between cells and give it less time to exert its effects. When someone has low levels of dopamine, there are corresponding behavioral consequences. They may feel less motivated to do things, have difficulty controlling their understanding of reward, leading to impulsive and compulsive behaviors, as well as a dozen other behavioral outcomes that correspond to the symptoms of ADHD. Other studies have implicated low levels of serotonin and norepinephrine as risk factors for ADHD, with serotonin regulating dopamine neurotransmission in some parts of the brain. Animal studies have also suggested the involvement of serotonin receptors, these 5-HT receptors in locomotion, tying back to the idea that some people with ADHD may be unable to sit still and providing additional evidence that serotonin genes may be important risk factors for the development of this disorder. So while satisfying, dopamine deficiencies are just a small piece of the puzzle, and there is a butt-ton of very active research into the roles of all of these neurotransmitters and their connections to ADHD. But recent work has shown us that it is much more than just neurotransmitter dysfunctions. 
In fact, it's likely related to dysfunction in different components of the neural circuits in the prefrontal cortex, the brainstem, and the cerebellum. ADHD has been linked to a range of brain functional connection abnormalities, with one of the most prominent being reduced inhibition of the default mode network, which I will hereby now be referring to as the DAM, because it's the acronym is DMN, and I want to say DAM every time I see it. But the default mode network is a bunch of interconnected brain regions that are active when you are awake, but not focused or engaged in any cognitive tasks. Think of it like a background program, a screensaver, the fun one with the bubbles, or the weird one on the DVD screen that I always thought was going to go in the corner, and I think it does. It, irrelevant. The DMN becomes less active during a cognitive task, so therefore lapses in sustained attention, as in someone with ADHD, are associated with increased DMN activity during attention-requiring tasks. It's as if you were using your computer to research something, and all of a sudden your screensaver and all those fun little bubbles start floating across the screen, making it really, really hard to focus on the task at hand. It has been suggested that inattentiveness observed during ADHD could be due to inadequate suppression of the DMN and too little activity in the attentional networks that are meant to be active during cognitive tasks. Now, that's not to say that dopamine dysfunction and dysfunction of the DMN are unrelated. Reduced dopamine levels have been associated with reduced DMN suppression during visual attention tasks. So it all ties back in together. Yeah. (laughs) I want to finish this episode by talking about treatments for ADHD. And fun fact, this conversation involves meth. So the the most common treatment for ADHD and alike disorders are stimulants, drugs that will increase activity in the brain. Think caffeine or amphetamines or methamphetamines or cocaine. Patients with ADHD are often prescribed Ritalin or Adderall, which are methylphenidate and amphetamine respectively. So Ritalin works by blocking the reuptake of dopamine and noradrenaline by blocking their transporters making it so that once dopamine is released into the space between neurons as a chemical messenger, it sticks around for longer. The more dopamine, you know, connects to the receptors on the other side, the stronger the message. Adderall, the amphetamine, works in much the same way to increase the activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain, but I believe that it works on different transporters and receptors, such as VMAT2. So in the normal brain, VMAT2 would move monoamines, such as dopamine, histamine, serotonin, etc., from the space between neurons in the cell to inside the cell, where it would store it until the next time it would need to be released. But when amphetamines enter the neuron and bind to VMAT2, the transporter reverses its direction, instead releasing stored monoamines inside the cell back into the space between cells and allowing them to bind to receptors on the next one, effectively doing their little chemical messenger duties. Now, I promised you guys meth, so here it is. It's a teeny, tiny little blip. Uh, One of the really cool fun facts that I learned in organic chemistry in undergrad was that the difference between amphetamines and methamphetamines is one carbon. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Uh, It's pretty cool how specific brains are. I'm sure that you know that meth is an often abused street drug, Hello, Breaking Bad. And as such, Adderall and Ritalin also have their abusive potentials. 
Taking too much Ritalin can cause euphoria. Also a very good show. Uh, delirium, confusion, toxic psychosis, and hallucinations. If someone without ADHD starts taking the stimulant, they may experience brain chemistry changes that are associated with risk-taking behavior, sleep disruption, and other undesirable effects. So I actually went to a high school in a very academically rigorous area, and there were always rumors flying around about people who took Ritalin or Adderall for test-taking to help them improve focus and keep them alert. But to my knowledge, it never helped anyone and they honestly tended to focus on the wrong things instead. They may have taken some Ritalin to help them study and accidentally gotten hyper-focused on cleaning their room instead and then promptly failed their exam the next day. Study drugs like that tend to be unreliable, inconsistent, and have negative consequences. So I highly recommend getting three good nights of solid deep sleep instead for that good, good declarative memory. I promise you it will be mwah, chef kiss. But that is a bite-sized-ish overview of the neuroscience of ADHD. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you learned something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at Neuroscience Amateur Hour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and, uh, friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please, please, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.